0: What's going on, motherfuckers? Welcome to the Crocs and Hot Pockets podcast. My name is Snackers, and today is Saturday. It is Saturday, March 27th, 2021, and this is episode number 143. It is so good to see you. Thank you for stopping by and saying hello. Uh, Tonight on the podcast, we have the one and only Wizard CM. What's going on, dude? Shit, did did I not unmute? I didn't unmute. Oh, my God. Yep, you had everything muted. Son of a bitch! I looked at my taskbar, and I'm like, why is Discord still showing as muted? You did that so gracefully. Anyways, what I meant to say is, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? God. Of course, of all people to do this to, i do it to you. Um, first of all, uh, what does the CM in your username stand for? And do people call you Wizard? Do they call you CM? Do they call you Sim?
1: So... Uh, initially online, I had my name as Computer Master, which is the CM part. Um, and after a while, there there were two parts. One, everyone on forums was calling me CM. And so I was like, okay, well, Computer Master, if you Google it, it comes up with all sorts of other people. So what if I make something unique? Um, so I added wizard on the front. And then everyone started calling me wizard. So (laughs) I might as well just strip out the CM at this stage.
0: Did you get any flack for labeling yourself as a computer master before you had a chance to prove yourself to the world that you were?
1: No. And I think that's because the the forums that I frequented at the time were all really um, friendly. Um, And so it didn't really come up.
0: Friendly technology? What forums were you going to? Because I don't know a goddamn forum on this earth that revolves around technology that has nice people on it.
1: Uh, there, there was this one ages ago called uh, JCXP. Um, and it was originally, like, one guy with a blog, um, and eventually he expanded it out into a forum, and then it was super popular, and then eventually it kind of died off, as all forums do. Um, but <laughs> yep it, you know, during its life, it was great. Uh
0: you actually, you brought up a really good point about forums dying. Um, there are still people out there, and I, I will admit, there's a very small part inside me that's like, bring forums back. This is the greatest time of my life. But it's just not where the attention is. So when people, when people come up to you and say, "Hey, my name is Stacy. I'm, I'm starting a website, and you know, I want to know like, which, which, which way should I go for forums? Would you?" Encourage them to go in a different direction, as far as if they were trying to support a community centered around their product, or would you say, oh yeah, forums are great?
1: I think it depends on the use case. Um, I think there are some forums, like the LTT forums, that are actually very active, and people are super, you know, friendly there. Um, and then there are others that are just completely silent and dead, or you only have a couple people posting in them to try and keep it active. Um, But I think these days people tend to gravitate more towards social networks, and usually you'd rather have the the comments for, a say, a YouTube video within the comments of the YouTube video rather than in a related news post on a particular site. So I think these days it's more where the content is than the discussion follows, because Twitter, Facebook, all of those platforms do provide a way to comment on the content that you post there. Sure. Even even TikTok as well, I guess.
0: Do you think that the the subject matter, like do you think forums are probably okay for a technology company, but if you ran like a lawnmower repair business or you're like you're just like the master lawnmower man do you think that having a for like do you think forums are suited for all different types of content or, or subjects or that they're they're really, really good at certain ones? And this is completely not even talking about the attention span of, of humans these days because our attention spans are so small, which is something that I very hardly I, I disagree with it very hard. So what do you think?
1: Um, I think it depends on what kind of conversations you want to have with your users, your audience. Um, I think for for certain things like a lawnmower business, I can't think of a lot of things you could discuss on a forum long term. Um, but then again, every um interest, every hobby, every job has a lot of people who are interested in that topic and are willing to discuss it to the end of days right um doesn't matter what that topic is some people can just talk about that topic forever so giving people an a a place to meet up and talk about that stuff definitely forums could be useful um but it also depends on i guess your moderation team and you know having people who are actively keeping the conversation going in a productive way rather than for example you know copying tweets into um, forum threads and then just leaving them um, rather than having an actual discussion about certain things that are relevant. Um, so, yeah, depends.
0: Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question first and then I'm going to tell a story and then I want to hear what you think. Um, the question is, do you like that it is normal for people to use Twitter to at companies when they are in need of assistance? Um, and so, and this, the follow-up story to that is there's been a lot of times where I have struggled to get help from a company. And knowing that Twitter is an open option for getting in touch with somebody, I will use that as like a last resort. Now, in my opinion, there's two different ways to go about getting in touch with somebody on Twitter. There is the adding them, complaining, shit-talking, dragging them through the dirt hopeful that like somebody on the other end who's a complete pushover will see and go oh my god we need to make this customer happy and then there's the way that i always go where i'm like hey i've been waiting for you know a request or a a response from support for four weeks i haven't heard anything is there anybody that you can put me in touch with that can help me out and then obviously the response to that is always like absolutely we can get you in touch with somebody and with even with like massive companies I've gotten through using Twitter and just adding them and they're like no you know let's let's go over to DMs even ISPs I've seen people have conversations with support in Twitter DMs which is like fucking insane um do you, do you like that we have that ability or do you see it more abused than than anything else
1: that's a big question um the I think The more accessible a company makes themselves, the better. Um, If they have to make themselves accessible on Twitter, even better. Um, I think that in terms of how people use that capability, I think for a lot of people, it comes down to, well, I don't want to fill out a form on the website. I don't want to email someone. I don't want to call someone. I'm already on Twitter. I might as well just tag them and say whatever. Now, from there, obviously, if you're going to tweet and complain immediately rather than actually asking a question, then, you know, you're already, you know, they probably shouldn't help you in the first place. Yeah. Um, but if they have their support structure set up in a way where they have a main Twitter account and they have a support Twitter account and you tweet at the main Twitter account and the support one responds saying, hey, you know, add us as a, as a you know, follow us and we will um, respond to you in DMs. Then that's just another way for people to be able to interact with that support person. Now, if that, uh, in most cases, my guess would be for those companies, the way they have it set up is internally that's probably treated as an email chain anyway, um, just with the endpoint being Twitter. So to them, the oh. experience might not change. But for the user, it's just another way to access it. In the same way that Facebook provides a way for you to message pages, and that's how a lot of bigger or even smaller, like restaurants and stuff where you want to book something or you want to quickly ask about something uh, about your booking, being able to just message them on Facebook because you're already on Facebook and the people you invited to an event are already on Facebook, then being able to message that person, uh, that company, and then when you get the response, forwarding it to your friends, you know, with one click, makes that whole experience easier because then you don't have to think about, oh, okay, so I messaged this company on their website, so I have... To make sure to check my emails to make sure i get a response and then when i get a response follow up that email so it becomes this whole okay i started the conversation here and then continued it over there and then eventually i got an email that said hey you know was this uh experience you know uh helpful to you in any way right i but if yeah if it, no sorry if go people ahead. are complaining then um yeah don't 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 respond to them just say hey <laughs> If, if you want help, you know, go to these other channels um, and someone will eventually, you know, help them if they go through the right channels.
0: I had not even thought about you just kind of enlightened me that they could be using Twitter as a front point, but still have their own support on the back end. Like whether you, they're using their own portal or just get, getting it forwarded to emails. Um, that's actually super interesting. And God. How, how active are you on Twitter, like, on a day-to-day basis?
1: I mean, I, I have TweetDeck open all the time. I okay. have multiple columns of different things that I'm following. Okay. Um, and it is always on my top monitor. Okay. Um, in terms of actually tweeting, eh, maybe a couple times a month. Um, sometimes I have things I want to tweet, but then by the time I get to my desk to actually tweet it, I'm like, I don't really care about this thing anyway, so I'm not going to tweet it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, my Twitter activity doesn't reflect how much I actually use Twitter, which is all the time.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, next question. On your timeline, who is the company that gets tweet complaints the most? Like, when you see people tagging companies and to be like, you motherfuckers, you sold me this piece of shit. I can't believe, blah, 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 blah. What is the number one company or organization that you see get shit on the most?
1: I I don't think I follow a lot of companies that get that kind of feedback or at least okay. it doesn't show up in my feed. Okay. Um but does the OBS column count because that that gets uh pretty active some days.
0: You know, I that just might not be in my my feed either because I feel like I don't see people like tagging OBS all that often. Um so maybe may, I could just be I could just be missing it. Um would you say that is like a lot of traffic for you?
1: Um well it depends because in terms of actually tagging, you know, the the OBS Twitter account, there's a few each day. Um in terms of people just complaining, you know, out into the void, um mentioning the word OBS, uh that's significantly more common. And oh you've got I can, a column you know, for that. Oh yeah.
0: Oh okay, um, yeah, that's that's where you, that's coming in, okay. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, um, in, in that aspect, I, I think a lot of people do complain out into the void. And a lot of companies have their filters set up in a way where they do see those tweets and can respond to them out of the blue, even though you didn't explicitly tag the account. Because every company is interested in their public image and being able to... Because word of mouth is one of the most powerful ways, you know, information spreads in terms of this company's good, this one's bad, right? You're not going to... Um, look at the first Google result, you know, not every time anyway. So you might as well, you know, ask your friends, ask your followers. And by ensuring... By, by those companies ensuring that you're, you know, uh, serviced and looked after, even when you don't specifically tag the account, then um, then they have a better image uh, in general.
0: The number one company that I see get shit on all day long is Elgato. The amount of tweets mm. that I see adding Elgato, the the number one shitted on product is the cam link, is people having issues with the cam link, which is such like, it's so 50-50 because I talk to plenty of people that have cam links, never a single issue. You talk to other people that have cam links, it is on and off every single day, constantly dropping in the middle of streams or freezing or um dropping frames, like left and right. But yeah, I... um. I can't imagine that anybody who works in the Elgato support department is there for any longer than six months because the berating that they get and just like the insults um, that that's probably I'm a believer that social media is one of the greatest things ever. I still have a Facebook. I don't use it. I'm not getting rid of it. I love Twitter. I love Instagram. Uh, I don't really love Instagram anymore, Uh, but I I think that they're great tools. This is one of the downsides of those types of tools because the people that are complaining think that they're just screaming out into the void, right? They think that they're just voicing words and they're just going out into the ether when in reality, there is somebody on the other side. And knowing somebody personally like my girlfriend who sat on the other side of the phone of phone calls like that for her job doing customer service, you know what kind of damage that that can do to a person. Even, you know, I do IT support all day long. And for the most part, people are, pretty cordial you get you get the disgruntled person every once in a while but when you have shit just getting thrown at you all day every day I I hope that they have some type of therapy over at Elgato because a lot of the a lot of the shit is warranted but at the same time I think they get a lot of just like shit shit <laughs> I don't know how to describe it but I feel like they get it out of a, a lot of unnecessary hate
1: I I think so too. I think in the end every company does. Um, Every every person develops an almost um, personal relationship with brands that can be unhealthy in that aspect, where they almost feel like they've been hurt personally because something they've purchased or something they're using doesn't work first time or doesn't work the way they expected it to, Um, even if they've done all the research, just because their use case might be very, very specific. Um, yeah, I, I, think Elgato probably gets lots of, um, people who, I mean, in the same way OBS does, where you have a lot of range in terms of people who have absolutely no idea what they're doing and people who are doing really complicated, advanced things with, you know, five computers and whatever, and, you know, 10 capture cards. Um, so you're obviously going to have some portion of the, um, the less knowledgeable Getting angry at stuff not being purpose-built for them, and then, you know, complaining to a company. Um, I think in terms of actually, you know, being in that support position, how to word this, um, it doesn't, when you're working in that support position, you know that you're not the one responsible for that person's issues. So, it's a little easier to be able to to disconnect that feeling of, hey, they're yelling at me, right? Um, <laughs> uh, and so, not every message in that aspect will, you know, have the same effect on you. Um, but being berated like that constantly would definitely, you know, not be healthy. And absolutely, uh, you know, there are people in even in the OBS support community where they will take a break because... There is just so much of people who don't want to know the solution, they just want you to fix it. And yeah. so you're stuck being able to not do anything, um, and then people just braiding you just because. Um, so you end up with either different people every six months, or just a smaller subset of people on and off different months or different weeks or even different days, right? Right.
0: Right. Um, when I was taking a dive into Gilded, the new, I, I, not new OBS competitor, but a um, Discord competitor, uh, one of the features that they are um, highlighting is their threaded responses. And when I first saw the threaded responses and what they could do, uh, have you looked into Gilded at all yet? I,
1: I took a peek at it originally. I okay. haven't really looked at it since.
0: So they they have this feature called threaded replies to where let's say you've got a channel with 10 different people that have posted something. If one person clicks on any of those 10 messages and hits create thread, it opens up a second window. Like you, you go deeper into that folder And then anybody who joins that thread can reply down below. And then when you back out of the thread, you don't see all of those replies. You just see the one message that also has a thread on it. When I first saw that, my mind was like, every company that has a support Discord, like Streamlabs, OBS, Elgato, this is fucking perfect for them. Because one of the biggest issues with having one support channel for the obs community is you have five different people that are posting their issues and then you have three different obs people that are trying to help like in between each other and um i just i can't imagine what kind of experience that is like for for the moderators and and for the the developers and so seeing something like that i'm like this would be amazing and there's little things like that in gilded that i think are 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 really really valuable and um i'm Definitely curious to see if Discord is going to adopt something like that, try to build something like like that into their platform, Um, because for community hubs, for support hubs, I could see Gilded being like a really, really uh, large competitor.
1: Yeah, I I think threading is a very complicated issue, regardless of whether it's Discord or Gilded or Twitter, um, because... It is a lot easier to split the conversation and even lose um, concentration on those conversations once you split them out into their own thing like that. Um, I think that's been an issue on Twitter for ages, where you can start off a, a thread and then someone else starts off a thread from the middle tweet, yeah. and that you know conversation starts, and then whoever goes to visit the thread later can only see small chunks of each thread, and you get this really disconnected uh, um, experience. Um, the gilded uh, threaded reply stuff sounds a lot like the slack threaded reply stuff which allows you to do the same thing split it off into its own window but with the option of um also posting your reply in the main channel um so it essentially duplicates it visible uh you know in a view of the actual conversation that's happening in the channel and the conversation that's happening in the replies of that um uh, of that thread um microsoft teams actually does something similar where each message in a channel is considered its own thread by default. So you have a comment box that's tied to that original um, message, and if you want to start a new message in the channel itself, that's a separate button that isn't a text box by default, because because they know that each message that you receive in a channel is the start of a conversation no matter what. And being able to see the start of a conversation easily, and then be able to continue that conversation in line... Um, makes it easier for people to know, you know, how much conversation is going on um, without turning it into noise, which is, I think, one of the downsides of how Discord ended up doing uh, replies, where originally it was just mentions, and now it's you can click reply on a message, which will show a little uh, preview of the original message above your message and then your message below it. Um, and if that original message is a Attachment or a embed, then it just says attachment or embed rather than giving you any kind of visual indication of what that conversation is pertaining to, and it doesn't provide you a way to go. Okay, I want to see all of the the messages that occurred in relation to this original conversation. Because yes, as someone who has been active in a support channel for, for years, um, I mean support for OBS started in uh, in an IRC channel, right? Um, so. <laughs> Everyone's used to that kind of flow on the, the developer and the support side, um, whereas people who need help are not used to that conversational style, anyone else can talk at the same time kind of mm-hmm. thing in the specific use case of support. Um, normally, you'd have, you know, visit any website that has some kind of support function, uh, support chat function built in. It is an isolated, you as the um, person who needs help, with the person who's providing the support. And it's a one-way conversation or or a two-way conversation between two people just trying to solve that one issue. Um, Whereas in something like Discord, you have a bunch of people all asking different questions, people who know their stuff and don't know their stuff, both replying to the same uh, questions and potentially adding to the noise of someone's asking one thing and someone else is providing a completely unrelated answer because they don't realize that that's an unrelated answer. Um, and so yes there is definitely a lot more noise in in that system but it also allows you to um, as a spectator be able to learn more by being able to just watch the conversation and see how different people respond whereas if obs for example had a private 1v1 conversation um, would that be with you know support volunteers that have been confirmed to know what they're talking about and you know from there how do you share that knowledge that they know with people who might be interested in helping out in their own circles right um so having a single channel allows you to kind of balance that not always the best but at least have some kind of sharing between those those two um environments i guess
0: We use uh, we use teams for work. I mean, we're we're a Microsoft house and all of the techs are in, in, in between 28 and like mid 30s. And then the whole rest of the company are like 40 and 50 and up and trying to get those like that age group to utilize the posting like the posts the replies the tags like that sort of messaging back and forth is really really difficult to for them to wrap their their head around because they're used to email reply cc who else i want in the conversation and we've had a really really hard time trying to migrate their mindset into thinking like email is not the end all be all because compared to how we communicate now email is one of the most archaic ways when age is concerned but it's also one of the most solid like there's absolutely still a place for email but in a world where a lot of our businesses are all still so digital email as a collaboration tool for more than one person is absolute absolute dog shit um that's interesting about the the correlation that you made between The text chats and then replies with threads on Twitter, because I agree when you were when you are kind of going through replies, you can get lost in what thread. And even though you're clicking on a thread on mobile and it's taking you, you know, it's secluding what you're looking at from what else is is on the page. And um, I I guess that could be a little bit more difficult. And then, yeah, that's got to be that's got to be changed a little bit. Do you see the way that you guys do support in Discord with one chat? Do you see that as not the best but the greatest option you have at the time or if like if you had to choose where you would put OBS's support, like how would you do it?
1: I I think there are benefits and downsides to the current system. I know that there are talks of potentially making it into more of a queue system. Um but it's not like the, the current system is incredibly detrimental. The, the situations in which it is detrimental is someone new joins the Discord, goes to that channel, posts a question, and then no one responds to that question. It gets lost in the noise, or just there's no one around who's actively helping, and that person feels, you know, like they didn't get the support they were hoping for in a channel designed specifically for support. Um, I don't know if a Q system would solve that issue. Because if you don't have people that are actively able to help, they still won't get that help. But at least in a public channel that's visible to everyone, someone who, you know, doesn't know every OBS answer but knows the answer to that specific question can always jump in and provide that answer, even if no one, you know, with a coloured name help, right? Um, I don't know if there's a perfect solution because of the variety of questions. And the variety of potential users, you can come in with uh, someone like um, you know, you know, someone with five computers that they're using to to build their stream, um, with a very specific question about passing audio or you know, stuttering on one computer that isn't happening on another. um, That would need someone who has a lot more experience, and for that, we do sometimes drag people into a more private channel. Where even we might not know the answer, but we know that other people in our, you know, moderation team or support team might be able to provide more insight. Or even, you know, if if it comes to that, then maybe one of the the more uh, ingrained devs that have dug that deep into the code to be able to go, hey, here's why you're running into that issue. Having that as a as an option is always useful, but it's not like it has become something that we use super often, um, because a lot of the questions that do come in are. I'm on a laptop and my screen is black. I don't know what to do. Right. Um, and at that stage, it comes down to more, you know, how can we better, um, how can we better expose these features or make the program itself easier to use in those aspects so that people don't have to go to a support channel to get the
0: answer to that question. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. The, um, super interesting conversation. Cause I always being in support, And dealing with the uh, client uh, and uh, support person relationship, I'm like always thinking about how can this be a better interaction. And then I'll go to certain places like I believe it is the Nerd or Die uh, Discord where when you go into the channel, there isn't like one open channel for support. Like you had mentioned before, you submit a, a question and then it goes into a queue. That queue creates a private channel that only the support person and that person can reply in, and then you you have your back and forth, and then when you leave, that channel just disappears and it's just gone forever. Um, but like you had mentioned, keeping that information for archive for later could be super super valuable. If threads are just getting created and deleted, there's no like from a management standpoint. It's, it's very helpful to know when the ticket was created, how long it's been open, if it's gotten a reply yet. Like, there's so much additional metadata that would be really, really important for people that are managing that. But then again, you guys are all goddamn volunteers. <laughs> like, the streaming world has access to you in a discord that is free. And that's honestly one of the craziest things about it. And I, I think about it and I go, these guys are they're our goddamn heroes. Like you are our Marvel cinematic universe. You are our fucking heroes. What the hell would we do without you? Um but we,
1: we try our best. Yeah,
0: <laughs> the, the patience and the humility that I witness in your guys's discord is like, it, it surprises me all the time. Um, one of my, one of the, speaking of things that I've seen in discords that are amazing, the ability to copy and paste a OBS log and paste it into discord and have it reply with the parameters. That is the coolest fucking thing ever. I think I I had first experienced that maybe like a year ago and someone's like, Hey, post your logs. I'm like, Oh, okay. I know how to do that. Copy, paste, post. And then I got that response. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I was like, I was so impressed that I had forgotten a, that I even had an issue. <laughs> like, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so it was it was really cool to see you guys um, develop something like that. Because even I got a little bit of extra info that I wasn't necessarily looking for. Like, I was working on, like, I was having an issue with, um, I think it was the replay buffer not starting. And I had forgotten that I was testing, recording... M- Multi, uh, multi-channel multi audio, but also trying to record 120 frames, which apparently is a, mm. a, a, a common issue right now. I had no idea. And one of the one of the support people picked it up, like, immediately. But there were some other things that it came back with. I'm like, oh, shit, I should change that, and I should change that. Um, so I thought that was really fucking cool.
1: Yeah. Um, the improved that over time. So now there are three aspects to that. One, there's a website you can go to to just paste your log. Um, Oh, really? Yep. Um, there's a second option in OBS now. If you go help uh, log files upload log file, there's now an analyze button in there that will also take you to that website. Um, in those situations where you're like, I just want to see if there's anything that my stream has ended um, that I should improve for next time. Um, and obviously the one in Discord, which is now open source. Actually, all parts of this are now open source, really. Um, Sweet. So- Yes, Um, and we're always looking for newer things to add to that analyzer because there are, you know, more unique issues that can be discovered, and that's why a lot of people who are helping out in the support channels they use that, you know, log analyzer as a baseline to go. Hey, here are some things that will help you, but may not be specific to your issue. But then they look at the log file itself anyway to go. Oh, but you also have five hundred sources in one scene, or you have. 300 media sources that are currently, you know, pointed to files that might not exist, right? And that might be causing issues for you as well. So there are a lot of moving parts to something like OBS, and a log file is designed to provide context to us as the support people to your setup without you having to manually send us a copy of your scene collection and profile, which, you know, the the profile will contain a semblance of your stream key, which we don't want. So a log file is a nice kind of uh, less personalized thing that just gives us the raw information about what could be causing you issues.
0: Interesting, okay. Um, something that I, I wanted to ask kind of earlier on before we had gotten onto the topic of OBS was your beginnings in history with, Uh, development and coding and programming and all that stuff. Um, So I'd love to hear kind of how you got your start in that. If it's something that you've been doing in your entire life, it's something that you picked up later. Actually, I don't even know what you do for a day job. So if you want to touch on that as well, uh, you're more than welcome.
1: Yep. Um, Okay. Well, I'll start with the beginning because that's usually the best place to start. Um, I got my first computer probably around the age of seven or eight. Um, Well, I I say my computer, it was more my dad's computer, Um, and I spent a lot of time playing on it. Um, And then eventually, um, I, I don't remember if my dad wanted us to move to a newer machine or something, but he essentially told me, hey, take everything out of this computer, and we'll put it into this other one. And he went outside to do something, and I pulled everything out of the old computer, put it in the new computer, plugged it all in. And and I was like, I'm done. And he's like, Oh, I just thought you were gonna, you know, pull everything out. I didn't know you were gonna put everything back in the way it's supposed to be. And so, you know, there was that beginning. Um, and then throughout all of primary school, I would help with stuff like you know projectors that were used for um, presentations and you know any kind of little bit I could do to help in that aspect. And I would help out because I went to a Catholic school. You know, there would be. Um, you know communion and stuff like that where we would have a, a projector with you know photos and videos of those students you know for different uh um purposes and then um the library had about 10 computers whereas classrooms had about one computer each so i would spend all of my you know lunch break in the library helping out there um as a you know what 10 12 year old you know <laughs> um doing my best there. Um, and I don't know if it was in primary school or whether it was in high school, but I started digging into visual basic originally. Um, and that was where I kind of started learning my way around things. And then in high school, we had like one computer class, like very early on that was like for one, not even a semester, but a term. Um, which was so they would switch between different tech-related uh, subjects. So, in a year, you would have woodworking as one, computers as another, and there were two others that I don't remember. Damn! Um, and I remember that. <laughs> I remember the the computer class being like the basics of Word, and I was in there being like, "I've just started high school. I know this stuff. Give me something a little more advanced." Um, and what ended up happening is, during those classes, I would I would finish my work within the first, like, 20 minutes, and the rest of the class, I'd be helping other people around the class, because they apparently didn't know the basics. And I'd be like, come on, we're supposed to be the generation that knows our way around this, you know? <laughs> um, and throughout the years, that school did eventually provide um, uh, classes for programming and other things, So, and there was one that was... Uh, Uh, that used a program called Game Maker, and that's where we actually ended up... It's a drag-and-drop kind of interface of making games, and it was a lot of fun to make my own variants of, like, well-known games. Okay. Um, So, for example, we had... uh, The one that I enjoyed doing the most was a game of Pong that had um, one along the bottom and one along the left that you would control both with the arrow keys why would you do that to to children (laughs) because it's fun Um, everyone else was you know doing other things and I was here just adding background music to see if that would distract you from being able to play it as well and stuff like that Um, and then eventually we did like proper um, uh, I don't know if I think we did C sharp in like year 10 or 11 Um, and that was around the time where I actually got and that was around the time when Minecraft started to come out. So... Oh, wow. I had a Minecraft server, and I would write the plugins for it, so that I could do more powerful things than just the basics. Um, so, that's where I started to learn my way around Java. And so, I'd be able to to make more advanced things there. Then, when I finished high school, I went straight into university, um, which I was there for two and a half years. Um, and... and um in university because it was just the associate degree because i was always terrible at maths um i didn't end up getting you know into a bachelor's immediately um and so a lot of the classes there were hey here's a computer build it um put the parts in install windows do the basics and i'm like i already did this for two years at high school and i knew the stuff before that as well so i'm bored here right um and when i finished that associate degree Um, One of the guys I knew at university already had a job at a company that was making mobile apps, and they needed a front-end web developer for their own, like, brand website. So I immediately started working there. Um, And so my first job full-time was as a front-end web developer. Um, Back then, I think it was all WordPress. Um, Oh, my God. (laughs) So So a lot of my experience, both in personal sites, um, I did do one project as a thing for fun during high school uh, in a CMS called Joomla. Um, And that was a lot of fun because essentially our school website hadn't been updated in like eight years. So I was like, okay, I'll make my own. And it was really nice. Um, And I did show it to the principal at one stage. Like I actually got a meeting with him and went in and showed him around the site. and. Originally, their plan was going to actually use it. And then I, you know, I finished high school and then nothing came of it. But that would have been a cool experience too if that had happened.
0: Um, Typical high school teachers to forget about us as soon as we leave, fucking bastards.
1: (laughs) I, I had some awesome teachers throughout the years, both in primary school and high school, that kind of wanted to help me pursue these, you know, tech related avenues, whether it was web dev. I had one teacher, I think, in. In year ten, who was basically like, "Hey, I have this personal project. Would you be able to help me make a website for it?" And he paid me for it and everything. Right? So <laughs> in
0: tenth grade, yeah. Jesus fuck. Okay. Uh, what, the development company that you worked for out of university—did you? That that was your first development job or your first job?
1: That was my first full-time job. Okay. I did do some uh, WordPress stuff. For a colleague of my dad's, who was also running his own, like, uh, I don't know what he was doing, but he was doing, like, tech support on one side and, like, building websites for people on the other side. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. But he would have different clients who needed websites done, and so I, you know, came in, worked for him a couple weekends to just, you know, you know help out making those websites. But yes, the the first full-time job, or actually even part-time, because I didn't really do a part-time job. that job i did for that uh colleague of my dad's wasn't even part-time it was just occasionally he would need a website done and so i'd go in for a weekend do it and you know job done um so yeah that's that's the whole starting for me
0: (laughs) and i'm sure there are some that can tell um from his accent but uh what part of um australia are you in
1: i'm i'm in victoria gotcha
0: Okay. So this is the first time I've ever had somebody on the podcast with such a difference in time zone. So for you, it should be one coming up on one PM yep. on Sunday while we are here at nine forty eight PM on a Saturday. Super fucking trippy. It's dark out here. I see the sun in your fucking window. I don't know what the hell's going on. Uh but uh, I'm just I appreciate you um taking time out of your Sunday and um Cool. So okay, awesome, super cool to hear about your past. Uh, I, I can't. I didn't realize that you had gotten started so early, and then just kind of hit the ground running. I remember taking two days of a Visual Basic class. I remember typing two lines into something. It was. Um, I remember blue screen, white text. I typed something about George Washington. It was like the first assignment was to like get the words george washington to do something and i did it and it didn't work i'm like oh fuck this i, I can't do this and i think i had swapped that out for woodshop or something and um that's how i like i knew right then that programming would just wasn't going to be uh for me um so as as your life kind of progressed how did you land working or begin working with like the obs team and and starting to do commits for them
1: so so there were two aspects to that. Um, the first was that at my first job, they, they did an event uh, every like six months or so um, called Disruptive Startups. And they would basically, it would be a free event. Um, you'd have a, a speaker on stage and then an audience that would watch. And at one stage, and they were essentially, this drove me nuts because they had one videographer at the whole company. And he would record the the speaker on stage with his personal, like, um, DSLR from the back of the room zoomed in. And then he would stand in a corner with, like, a um, shotgun mic pointed at the stage. Um, and that's how he would record the whole, whole event. Um, and I, you know, watched one time and I was like, this is terrible. Th- they have a mixer. Plug into that. You have a portable recorder, plug it into the mixer and record the audio from the mic directly. Um, and once we did that, eventually they were like, hey, what if we streamed this to Facebook? Um, because we have an audience on Facebook, people who can't make it, why don't they watch online? So um, that was when I first properly used OBS for anything um, and helped um, create a online event for them to be able to stream that out live. With high quality audio coming straight from the person's mic up front, um, with a DSLR plugged into like my really old Ava Media capture card that I've still got around somewhere. Um, and that was when I started to, um, you know, spend a bit of time in the OBS channels. And I ran into an issue with the Ava Media uh, capture in OBS where the audio would stutter. And if I added the audio source separately, it would be fine. Um, but if I added it as part of the the video capture device for the Ava media card, it would stutter. And so I went into one of the support channels with that. And at some stage, I coordinated with Jim to actually try out a few different builds to fix that. Um, him writing the code, me just kind of being there running the, um, the program and going, yes, it didn't work or... Uh, you know, whatever ended up happening. Eventually, we did fix that. And so that was my first contribution in the sense that I helped get a bug fixed. Um, and then I just stuck around in those channels um, and kind of learned my way around a bit. And then I did a D&D uh, live stream with my colleagues at that first company, where Friday nights, the six or seven of us would go into the boardroom after work and stream D&D for three to four hours. Um, and I was using my Surface Pro 4 as the kind of computer recording everything, which is not designed for encoding for four hours. <laughs> um, and I had three webcams hooked up. Well, actually, two webcams externally and the one on the tablet itself, um, so that I'd have two cameras pointed at the uh, players and one at the DM. Um, And because they were both Logitech cameras with the same model number... Um, every time I hooked everything up, one camera would load, the other wouldn't, and all sorts of, you know, craziness there. Um, and so it would literally take me about half an hour to an hour before going live to actually get it all working. The actual plugging in all was fine, but getting all three cameras running at the same time every time was a nightmare. Um, and then eventually we kind of finished that campaign that we were doing, and... Uh, I learned things during doing that of, you know, better handling OBS stuff. Um, And then once OBS moved from uh, IRC to Discord is when I really became active and started learning my way around the actual internal functionality and then started to learn my way around potentially contributing my own code into it.
0: Interesting. And it's funny you say that. um, When I had set up my... Kitchen PC because I had I was dabbling with the idea of cooking streams and I had four Logitech C920s and I'm like this probably isn't going to work but I was I was dedicated to trying to see if it would and I plugged them all in and they all registered I, I had them running at 720p I mean it was an older the computer that's in there right now is a Core i7 920 so the first generation i7 and that thing streamed 1080p base canvas with four Logitech C920s at 720. I'm so proud of that thing. Um but I remember plugging them all in and then getting an image immediately. And I thought to myself, man, if this was like 3 or 4 years ago and I was running like OBS Classic, it's just one of those technicalities that we probably take for granted now. Like just the 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 act of getting video capture devices to work properly with computers has just always been a challenge. And in the early days of OBS, it was a challenge for not OBS's fault, but for so many other reasons and to have it work so easy now, like for example, my streaming PC, I have a internal capture card. I have an external. I have two external capture cards. So one um, AverMedia internal And then I have an Avermedia Extreme Cap U3, which at this point has got to be like six years old, still runs my GoPro. It freezes every once in a while. Um, And then I have an external uh, HD60S and then three Logitech USB web cameras. And it works borderline flawlessly. You got to restart a source every once in a while. But compared to years ago, trying to use more than one camera at once, it's, it's just insane those little quality of life things have gotten so much better and being a streamer is the easiest that it's ever been there, there's other technical stuff that can make it more difficult but if you've got a computer f- from within the past five years and a 200 graphics card you can have a really great looking stream and, and set up without ease, uh, especially with the, the variants of OBS, um, like OBS live and, and stream elements and slobs. Um, you know, there's, there's easier ways, but even with just OBS studio, as it is, it's never been easier to, to live stream. And it's, it's a, it's, it's fucking awesome.
1: Yeah. I think X split and OBS in their original days are the ones that kind of started to make that path easier for everyone. And, through their popularity, companies have started improving their own hardware to be more compatible in a lot of ways. Where, like, even old Ava Media and old Elgato devices had very unique, special drivers for them that would take some setup or would require their app to be running in the background or whatever else it might be. And now they're all just using generic um, video drivers um, that the operating system provides so that they're compatible with anything um, in the same way that webcams are. And just that alone makes the process so much easier that you can just buy a cheap $20 capture card off Amazon um, just to pull in a, any kind of camera that you've got sitting around and just get started with nice high-quality visuals um, and then a microphone. I When I originally did YouTube videos as a kind of I'm bored, I'm going to do YouTube videos sort of thing, um, I was using like a cheap $15 headset and even the mic on that was surprisingly good compared to even expensive gaming headset microphones now mm-hmm. where it's like i why is why have you know um some parts of this improved so much in terms of process and quality whereas others have kind of just stagnated where we're all kind of going someone please make this
0: yeah please god there's so many categories like that in the streaming world that just have not moved um are you by the way are you using uh nvidia broadcast for for your mic
1: i'm 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 currently using um a co1u as my mic i'm going in through usb um and that's going into adobe audition with a few filters set up in that Um,
0: you, you've done a good job of filtering because I'm assuming I'm coming out on speakers right now. So not, not only that, but when you've adjusted your microphone, there's no rumble. There's no mic sounds of you touching the capsule. So bra fucking bow.
1: (laughs) It, It took a lot of work to get to where it is. And like, there was one point where I could turn my head slightly away and it would pick up at the same volume. Um, and now it's a little, it, it mutes itself a little too soon. Um, but it's a tricky balance of, well, these speakers are point like, I use 5.1 surround. Um, you can actually see one of my speakers right here. Um, and getting it so that the mic doesn't pick up what's coming out of the speakers is the trickiest thing to do. Yeah. But it's also one of the, the fun things about, we have all these tools at our disposal, um, why not use them? Why not, you know, I, I spent many years using my headphones, hang on. I use these headphones for everything. Um, And I would sit at my computer after work wearing these for three to four hours of just gaming and stuff. And it was like, I'm sick of wearing headphones for hours at a time. I was like, okay, I'll just just hook up a mic and add some filters and be able to watch movies at 5.1 while still chatting to my friends, you know?
0: Those look like... Uh, first of all, the Audio-Technicas, the MX-50s, mm-hmm. they look like yes. Iron Man's uh, Audio-Technicas, the red and the yeah. gold.
1: <laughs> I, I started with the black ones, but red's my favorite color. So when when my original ones broke, I was like, okay, I, I want the red ones. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that you're probably... I, I know of friends that have preferred to use speakers, and I'm I'm actually pretty close. I was thinking about taking some of my... Um, stimulus money. Did you guys, did you get any stimulus from your government for COVID relief?
1: Um, so the way ours did it was only, uh, yes, there was stimulus. I think, um, I don't remember if you had to request it specifically and they would give you separate stimulus if you had to take a day off to get a test done. Um, so they, or, you know, for however long you weren't working to get your, um, uh, what's it called, um, to get you, your result for the test back, they would pay you for those days that you don't work. Um, in my case, I continued working um, as a web developer from home, so I haven't seen it, um, but I do know that a lot of people you know, didn't get to work throughout the past year, so.
0: Gotcha, okay. Um, so I am somebody who has never had a good place for speakers. And recently, after I did a little bit of an office remodel, the two corners that are right next to me have now been opened up. And I'm like, I really want to get a good pair of studio monitors so that when I'm not streaming and I'm just sitting here, even though these are the comfiest headphones in the fucking world, there's still a little bit of fatigue from from wearing them. And then there's the heat and the the ear irritation. Um, I know that my ear shape and size I'm very lucky because my ears don't hit the inside of my um ear cups they I don't get fatigue around my head even though I have a bald head um and so I'm like, I would really love to have a, a good set of speakers and but again, that's always the issue is if you want to use a microphone um you're gonna have some problems filtering it out. I also have I don't especially
1: don't even, with better quality speakers you right. start to. It, it has a wider range so you have to figure out where your voice fits into it so that you just get your voice right
0: yep so um so yeah i I've been kind of looking into and I know there's some great options like there there's presonus there's Mackie there's rockets that you can get and I'm not um I care about audio but if you were to sit me down with a bunch of different speakers if if somebody were to ask me like what's the difference between them I'm like I can't accurately gauge that so um, we'll see what we'll see what way I go. As far as um, getting into the development with OBS, do you have any crazy stories that have unfolded already, just from like being being involved with the with the team and and committing? Uh, do you have any crazy shit that you can that you can share? Crazy,
1: crazy shit, as in what kind
0: of? Um, It could range anywhere from the craziest person that you've ever dealt with on the support side of things. Uh, It could be, like, the craziest bug or, like, the most, the largest anomaly that you've ever encountered trying to work um, within OBS. Have you ever broke it in the weirdest fucking way that just made absolutely no sense? Something like that.
1: I mean, people break OBS in the weirdest ways all the time. Yeah. And the, the ones that do break it the strangest on, like, Linux, for example, tend to come back and provide some sort of workaround or fix for it. Um, most of the people that come in to support are the ones with, like, really simple issues. But you get a couple that are like, hey, my, you know, my camera only works in these situations or stuff like that. Nothing comes to mind at the moment. Um, but there have been situations where we pull someone into the, the private support channel and spend, like, a week of trying to figure out what's going on. There is one issue that we don't know if it's something on our side. But essentially, when we released the virtual camera as part of, uh, you know, the latest update, uh, one, I think, came with the virtual camera... Um, The weirdest issue we've come across is that some people come in saying, my normal webcam on my laptop no longer works while OBS is installed. Whoa. And the weirdest part is that each person that comes in, it's a different model of laptop, different model of webcam, and different behavior. For a couple people, it was that the webcam itself got disabled in the BIOS. Who knows why? Okay. For other people it's disabled in device manager, but once they manually enable it it disappears and then they still can't do anything with it. And, and on it, top of that you uninstall OBS and the virtual camera, the their standard camera doesn't come back. Oh, and <laughs> and at that stage you're like, well, we can't do anything because we don't even know if it's our own end. Right. Um so that one's the one that stands out to me as as one of the big ones that kind of affects a few people, um especially as the whole point or the, the main reason we added the virtual camera built into OBS in the first place was to make it more accessible to especially teachers working from home, trying to, to, to teach students, you know, wherever they may be. So, yeah,
0: that, that would be the one. <laughs> Is there um one of the... How do I put this? Um, NDI. NDI has been around for... A long time um in the grand scheme of things not that long but in the streaming world it's been around for a super long time it has always been seen as a alternative for capture cards i personally have always had issues with ndi there was maybe like a four to six month period where it worked great and it was it was a small time when i didn't have a capture card or um you know what? I had built my streaming PC, couldn't afford to get an internal capture card at the time. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just use NDI. For me, all hardwired, all of my networking equipment right behind me, all gigabit, all gigabit Nix, all Cat6, NDI should work perfectly. But I just always have had issues with it. In your in your time with viewing the OBS support, um, either the forums or the Discord, do you see a lot of people having the same unexplainable NDI issues, or do you see it more just working for a lot of people and, that, and that's just the end of it? Because I really don't know if my experience is unique or not.
1: I would say most of the NDI setups I see are not particularly complicated in their execution. Um, and as far as I can tell, for most people, it seems to work okay. There are definitely, it's a, NDI in general, both behind the scenes and the stuff that's exposed to the user, is very much a black box, and it doesn't give you a lot of configuration in, for example, say you have two NICs and want to send your NDI over one um, while everything else goes over the other. It doesn't give you that kind of control. It just goes, if I can see the other computer for any reason, I will work. Um, And there is a, a bit of kind of magic that they do behind the scenes of, well, we'll add firewall rules and all sorts of stuff to try and force our way through to the other computer. Um, But most people who come in with NDI are actually uh, having trouble either installing it or um, on macOS because of the whole, like, um, code signing stuff that um, Apple have kind of um, made, you know, as required as part of the system. Um, People struggle with that, trying to get things to communicate in the first place. so. Yeah, sometimes people do come in with like, I have these two computers, they're plugged in, it should be working, one computer sees it, uh one computer sees the other computer, but the other computer doesn't see the first computer, and I don't know why, and it's like Yeah, it does happen. We have no control over that and we wouldn't even know where to begin to try and troubleshoot that. We do sometimes go, Okay, well, you know, try restarting both computers, try restarting the router. But that's about all we can do in that aspect, purely because it's a black box. And um, a lot of its behavior is out of our control. Right. Uh, my camera has frozen. Apparently. Hold on.
0: Uh, did it over? Did it overheat? Oh, I don't
1: know. It's a C nine twenty. I've just restarted it. Let's see if that. <laughs> oh, no, you're it. back. Okay, there we go. <laughs> that
0: was good. Um, there's, yeah, there's that,
1: a reason I have it full screen in front of me.
0: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there is a. Um, d- d- you put it perfectly. NDI is a black box, and when it works, it's great. And then when it doesn't work, there just isn't a lot of options for troubleshooting. And I've been really relieved to see NewTek putting more resources into like their social media presence. Like they are out developing more tools. Um, so I actually use um, the NDI tools for package. So your your camera technically is. On this monitor that I have, you can actually probably see yourself over here to the right. It's probably tripping you yeah. out a little bit. Um, but I don't want to be looking over at this monitor over here You know, when I'm talking to you. So I use NDI's uh, Screen Capture HX to just take what monitor is over there. And then I just have OBS running on my gaming PC right in front of me. And for that, it has just been amazing Um, being able to send my camera. So if I have a work PC that is down here underneath my desk, it has power and a network cable, and that's it. So I just RDP into it. I open up OBS on my streaming PC, and I use virtual cam to send my cam over to Teams that runs on that computer, and then I use RDP for, for my mic. And just having that, being able to simplify my setup instead of having to have different video and audio devices for a bunch of different computers um so there's been advancements with both NDI and then with NDI tools outside of OBS that have just been like a, a game changer for me
1: yeah I I think they've they've been pretty great in that area of trying to move the industry forward in you know, either small-scale studios or, like, individual setups. Um, I've been watching a um, a couple podcasts uh, that are done at something called the Twit Studios. And they've been using the TriCaster, which is also done by NewTek, as their kind of, like, camera-switching tech for the past, like, 12, 14 years or something
0: like that, right? Um, you say Twit? It's fascinating. T-W-I-T? Yeah, TWIT.TV. Oh, I haven't watched Twit in a long... You just brought me back to, like, 2015! That's been so long! Oh my god.
1: Yeah, um, so they've been using the TriCaster for, for all of their stuff for a while. I don't know if they still do, but, like, they would talk about it all the time, just because, it. you know, they had a, a number of, like, consumer-grade... Um, You know, hand cameras that that were just you know set up in different parts of their studio, and they would use the tricaster to switch between them. And it's like just that alone simplifies so much for them. And then you get something like NDI, which is entirely software based and gives you complete control over being able to just have multiple cameras and computers and things that you want to bring into one stream. Is you know huge. And then being able to use that in tools like OBS. means someone like you or I can have this huge studio set up in our our office or in my case my bedroom and be able to just make professional looking productions on a budget
0: which is great just the the functionality of being able to send video over cat 5 or cat 6 like just mm-hmm. like oh you know if I want to do a stream in another room all I really need is a Dell from eight years ago. Oh, I think your camera froze again. Yep, I noticed. I don't
1: know what's going on. It's never done this before. I'm going to turn on the aircon. Conversation
0: too hot. Um, Apparently. You you really... Because I've done this. I've taken Dell Optiplex micro PCs, put them on the other side of the house, and then just hooked up OBS webcams to them, and then I just NDI them back to my streaming rig, and... Bob's your uncle. I've got a streaming rig in another part of the house. And that was something that just wasn't possible before. Like you'd have to go through the whole process of taking your streaming setup out of your game room, putting it wherever you needed it to be, rehooking up everything. So that's definitely been um, a lifesaver in little pinches like that.
1: Yeah. The, the beauty of networking in general is the, the interoperability that you can just connect anything to anything. And as long as it can access the network in some way. You can just do things that you couldn't before. Um, even cameras that just have a, a HDMI output, they are not as useful as, you know, a camera that might have a network output that allows you to do even more, right? Um, even webcams, I there was one point where I wanted um, a camera out the front so that if someone knocks, because I'm at the back of the house, to be able to see who it is, right? And my initial, I had a netbook that I set up with a webcam out the front And tried to get the... It was running Linux, so I was like, okay, maybe I can set this camera up to kind of just stream over the network to the other computer. And it was a nightmare back then when I was trying to do it. Um, And now, if you want to do that, it's so easy. You don't even have to think about what kind of technologies you want to... uh, you, You don't even have to spend hours looking for a solution. You just start up two programs, hit go, and voila, everything just works.
0: You just brought me back again um, when I used (laughs) to work at Best Buy in the computer sales department. And I was scouring the open box area of Best Buy, which if you were an employee, you could get insane deals on open box. It was like an additional anywhere from 30 to 70 percent off the retail price. If you bought it open box as an employee, there was a 10 inch uh, Asus netbook that had i think it was an atom processor maybe four gigs yep. of ram some like shitty thing all, and all the
1: initial ones were were adam and like four gigs, four gigs of ram it was terrible
0: didn't have a battery or a charger so i had to buy those separately but my mm. use case was i loaded my entire music library into that netbook. And I think I had loaded up Ubuntu on it. I can't remember which Linux distro that I went with. And then I just auxed out into my car speaker. So I would just keep the netbook in my passenger seat. And like whenever I was getting ready to change the song or change an artist, obviously not driving, I would just lean over. I'm like, I'm the coolest fucking kid. I got a laptop in my car for audio. And it was really like such a terrible setup. I only used it for a couple months. And I can't remember what happened. I think... Either Apple Music had started to get it either had started or I had come up with another. I remember jailbreaking one of my iPhones. There was a service that I ran on my Plex server at home that made my music library available over uh, LTE or 3G. Then I had like some weird third party application that ran on my phone that would stream all of my music from the house. I think that's what took over once I once I got fed up having a netbook in my car for audio
1: yeah that that sounds like a terrible user experience very very
0: but sometimes you just you just gotta do what you gotta do when you really need something in your life you know (laughs) well
1: exactly and and that's one of the beauties of you know our society now if there's something you want to do Pull up a YouTube video and it'll give you everything you need to know to to pull off the thing you want to pull off, as weird as your use case may be. Um, Even 10 years ago, stuff like that would have been so hard to find. You'd have to, you know, contact a friend who knew a friend who knew how to do something so that you could ask them about how they do things, um, which does still sometimes come up. Um, I have a uh, a Nook in my room that um, allows me to set up a network boot from any computer in my home network so that I can boot into Linux. And I learned that from a colleague at work. And all of the tutorials that are online are terrible for it. Um, And so, you know, there are some things you can just do because the internet provides the tools. um, And then others where you have all the tools, but no knowledge on how to use them.
0: Other than Wendell... There is not a single tech on the internet who is good at making Linux tutorials. Every Linux guru in the history of the world doesn't know how to make a goddamn tutorial to save their life, and that is honestly one of the probably one of the biggest reasons why it doesn't flourish as much as it could is is because like the um, the techs with communication skills aren't on the <laughs> Linux side of the world quite yet. Um, do you use Linux primarily, like, in any aspect of your life? I mean, other than if you're still doing web development, I assume Linux is your life.
1: I, I prefer to do everything on Windows. Um, I do. I actually, last week, because it was bugging me so much, I also bought myself a Mac Mini for OBS dev. Um, so now I have uh, a Nook for, for Linux stuff, a Mac Mini for macOS stuff, and my main gaming machine for Windows stuff. Um, all nice. of my web dev I do in Visual Studio Code. I connect um, to servers when necessary using Windows Terminal, um, and everything else. If there's anything I need to do, I do it all on um, through those two tools. Really
0: interesting. Okay, and do you are you yeah. using the um, Command Prompt or are you using PowerShell?
1: I. It's funny. I prefer to use. Ubuntu shell significantly more often. I use WSL every single day. Oh, okay. Um but in terms of doing Windows specific things, I don't really use either. I I haven't really I used to make like um batch scripts ages ago on Windows. Um but I haven't really had a use case. Everything that I want to do on Windows has some kind of nice um, UI uh, that you can use for it. Even stuff like you know searching through files or searching through folders, um, where previously you'd have to use you know something like grep in the command line to, to get anywhere close to what you wanted. But these days there are so many nice tools. Even like Power Toys, uh, which is a Microsoft thing that lets you split your screen in different ways than the system provides natively. Um, all of these tools are just there for you to use now um yeah i haven't had to do any scripting on windows for ages okay it's great
0: i uh it's real funny because ndi just crashed on my streaming pc your camera froze again and i was right about to say hey your camera froze and then i looked up at obs and you were still moving i'm like what the fuck uh <laughs> that is the first time that that version of ndi has actually crashed on me um Maybe yeah it's just me yeah. god damn it it's Australian internet there are uh I I use command prompt pretty much every single day um for my day job but yeah I there's plenty of people that I see using batch scripts for like everyday things but I guess because I didn't grow up using the command line like when I started using computers our first computer at home had windows 95 and then we went up to xp and up and up and up and up um by the time i got into it and networking there were guis for absolutely everything that we were doing there just wasn't a need and so i'm i'm pretty lacking when it comes to being proficient with command prompt um and i've gotten better as i've started to learn networking a little bit more down the road but uh, if you, if you don't start with it, it's really hard to go from a graphical user interface. Like, oh yeah, I want to I want to write lines and and type out everything manually. I want to search folders using command line. It's it's a terrible terrible experience. And um, again, all the things that I could be doing with batch scripts on a on a personal consumer level, there isn't a lot of use for it. But for for the prosumers and the professionals that are using their computers as professional workstations. There's just so much more that they they can be doing. And um, so there is a use for it.
1: Yeah, there, there are uses for it. I haven't had a reason to learn either uh, PowerShell or AutoHotKey, even though I have them installed and available to me whenever I end up in a situation where I need them. But so far, it just hasn't come up.
0: AutoHotKey is another one that I haven't dove into. And being somebody that loves macros so much... It's just something that I haven't had the reason because every time I've gone to dive into it, I've always hit the wall of like, okay, do I want to learn all of this for this one specific thing or do I want to try and see if one of my existing tools can just do it instead? And yep, when it comes absolutely. to being more robust, I'm sure that Lua Macro and Auto Hockey could do what I need, but I, the barrier to entry to learn those is so much higher. And I think I don't necessarily have the brain for learning that easily. I'm sure somebody like you could probably pick it up really quickly, but I'm a visual dude. I grew up with graphical user interfaces, so it's a little bit more difficult. Um, i remember the first time that i ever heard of auto hockey was Taryn's macro video when he went over his two keyboards that had macros for every single key it was like absolutely insane um but yeah I, again i haven't really found a reason and do you do you feel like that docs nerd points away from you like when you hear about a tool that so many people use or like nerds and geeks use and you see it and you're like i don't Understand the hype behind this, like did you get down on yourself for that, or you're like, now it's just as useless for me, and you just move on
1: i I think everyone has their own use case, and so i it, it's never really bothered me. Um, the one thing I did struggle with at uni was for um our Cisco course for networking. I could not get my head around the command line for that. The commands were just so verbose and unnecessary that I was like, I'd rather just do this in an Ubuntu shell and just be done with it. Where it's like, use the tools that you know and you're comfortable with rather than the tools that everyone else is using just for the sake of using what everyone else is using. Um, for me, it's often come down to, I, if I want to learn something like um, AutoHotKey, I need to have a valid reason to learn it. Um, I can't just jump in and be like, okay, I will find a tutorial on how to use this and try and recreate the thing for the tutorial because I just I get bored 5 minutes in being like none of this is interesting to me. Um if it's something for example at my first job um near the end of it um I was bored le- knowing my way around WordPress and jQuery and wanted to learn something new, right? So um when our creative director was like, "Hey, I want to have this thing that allows us to better um, showcase user stories to clients rather than through a, through a spreadsheet. Um, I was like, all right, for this thing, I will learn um a new front end library, and in two weeks, I had a fully working you know web app that did all the things that was part of the original request. Um, and I learned a new thing out of it. Um, outside of that, I just it, I just move on. <laughs> I don't care enough. I've I've got. More important things to to think about than, um, how to learn auto hotkey.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. Uh, I got another question for you. If you were to stop supporting and stop committing OBS, and you were to quit your day job right now, would you seek out another job within your the industry that you're in, or Kind of doing the same thing, but for somebody else, or would you go off into a totally different side of development? Um, like, w- what would you do if you had that choice?
1: So, throughout all of high school and uni, I had no idea. All I knew was tech is the the corner of the world that I'd love to do stuff in. Um, but until I got my first job, I didn't know which part of that that would be. Whether it was programming, whether it was you know, setting up networks for enterprise or whatever else, right? Um, so, I don't know what I would go to next. Um, as it stands, I, I would I, I really enjoy programming as a as a thing. Um, for programming, for me, it really depends on the use case, um, which again is similar to how how I learn best. But um, I've worked at my current company for. Uh, since late 2017. Um, and we do smart water and gas meters um, where we, we build a physical attachment to those meters, which tracks the usage. That gets sent up to our back end, which then gets displayed in a front end I build. Um, and for me, I see that as beneficial to everyone, not just the people using it, because um, people who know how much water they're using are, you know, tend to use less and all sorts of things in that area. And if you know, this system can you know detect if someone's water is leaking, and there's a notification system to then notify that that customer, hey, your water's leaking, and we can even shut it off for certain setups and stuff like that, right? Oh, so, so this is for
0: the customer facing as well, not just for your management.
1: It's it's primarily we we our customers are the big um, you know water departments or you know gas departments in different countries. Uh, we've got South Korea and Japan and Australia. Um, I think there's some stuff happening in China as well, um, but the main use case is those individuals. Um, in South Korea, uh, sorry, the, in, the 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 companies, right? The the departments. And in the case of South Korea, the water department, uh, as part of a, a greater thing in in that country, has a thing called a health check, where essentially if the person hasn't used any water in a certain number of days, then they actually send police over to make sure, um, you know, in, in, it's usually used for, um, you know, the older generation where you might, you know, they don't have someone looking after them. So, you know, they send out police after two days of you not using water to make sure you're okay, right? And having a system that gets readings from the meter every. Um, hour, and forwards that to our system every 12 hours, being able to go, hey, this person hasn't used water in two days, and we don't know why, we'll go check on them, is infinitely more useful than um, my first job, which was mobile apps, because um, the creative director for my first job started a new company, and I worked at his company for a month last year, when my company went under for a bit, um, and the way they do things is basically customers come in being like hey i want a mobile app that does this right and the thing is this is always something that has 10 other existing apps out there um and so for me after a month i was like okay i'm I'm gonna go back um because i don't see the benefit of making yet another fitness app for business right um i i don't see the benefit to anyone of uh, they, they also had a podcast app that they did it for a different client. And as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, I was like, I know exactly what I want out of a podcast app. Um, and so I tried out their podcast app and I was like, this is literally Google Podcasts. Um, they, they had literally grabbed screenshots um, from Google uh, Podcasts, like the original client, sent it to the devs here. And the, de- the designers here had made designs based on that. Oh, no. And the end result was Google Podcasts. Um, and I just don't see... That doesn't feel meaningful to me. So as long as I'm doing something that benefits someone in a meaningful way, whether it's you know in a support channel in OBS where if I can help one person, I'm already happy, right? If I can help 10 people in an hour, even better, right? Um, Or if it's, you know, adding features to something like OBS that makes people's jobs easier, right? Um, All of this to kind of improve lives, even if it's indirectly, is is what works for me. So I don't know where I would go next if, you know, I left OBS and front-end web dev, but it would have to be useful to someone
0: gotcha i was just having a conversation with my girlfriend a couple days ago and she she works for um, a company doing account management but due to covid they've had to switch things up and she's had to re-dabble into customer service and you know she says i wish that i could just help people and enjoy it but because she's an introvert helping people especially disgruntled people just drains the absolute shit out of her where i can sit on phone calls and do tech support all fucking day long is it tiring yeah but i too get a sense of fulfillment out of that so you definitely have to be a type of person to do that all the time um let alone volunteer in a discord and do that all the time so hats off to you um Side question, is there anybody who opts out of that water tracking? Like, do, Does anybody say, like, I don't know if I want you knowing my water usage because they feel like somehow that's going to tell a story about them that they don't want anybody to know?
1: I don't really know. Okay. I'm just the front-end web developer who makes the fancy UI for all the back-end stuff. Gotcha. Um, my guess is that... The water company themselves probably communicates it through their um, to their users, but it. I do know that, for example, even though um, I have no access to this information, I do know that the water meter we have attached to our house actually has a digital display on it, and it does send information out. I don't know if that's something we can opt out of, but I can physically go outside and look at the display to see how much um, you know we've used in the house. Um, so i don't know um i would hope that there's a way to opt out purely because people should be given the choice um but i think in terms of something like that the while individual water usage does add up you know multiple houses whatever the big one that's fascinating is they also have these meters hooked up to like factories and big warehouses where they're going through so much water every day that the amount of water a regular person uses is completely inconsequential when compared to that Mm. so it's it's more a matter of how much uh, gas is also super fascinating in that way where um gas pressure is a very important part of being able to get gas to the end of the street right you don't want to push too much and cause issues but you don't want to push so little that you can only reach the front two houses and then everyone else down the end never gets any gas, right? Um or if the two houses out the front are using a fair bit of gas, being able to dynamically go, I need to send more to to the pipes further down, um, is is useful in that aspect. Um so there are there are use cases where it's all about making it more efficient for everyone rather than spying on your particular use case.
0: Sure. I wonder wonder if we'll ever get to a point where it is a law or it is law that the utility companies have to give that information to the customer. Like you Mm -hmm. have to be able to go out and see how much water you're using so that when you get that bill – from the department at the end of the day or at the end of the month, you can verify, oh, yeah, no, that is that is the amount that I'm using or the amount of electricity. So that's always been kind of like an interesting aspect of utilities, because you really don't know what you're using until you get that bill at the end of the month. And even then, it's probably a month after you've already used it. So it's like almost two months down the road. Um, so that's super interesting. I I never it's just something I've never thought about having that sort of functionality with uh, with water, but that actually is a wonderful feature, especially for seniors. If you've got somebody that doesn't uh, doesn't use water, and you're like, oh shit, we gotta get we gotta get somebody over there. It's like, no, we just uh, we just had a two day long gangbang like that. We're fine, we're fine over well,
1: here. Or, or they went on holiday and and didn't tell anyone, right? Um, and that does happen, but at least someone went to check to go, is this person okay, right? Because an older person might not, you know, they might fall over and just not be able to reach the phone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and two days is a, you know, long enough time to go, we should check on them, we should really check on them. <laughs> um, but in in that kind of situation, essentially you're saving lives, right? Or potentially saving lives. And that's freaking awesome.
0: <laughs> the, is that... I, I assume that that's probably not something you thought of when you got into that job, but it's just like, oh, that's actually kind of fucking cool now that now that you're in it.
1: Yeah. Um a, a similar use case that was less like awesome but still just cool was um there was a um shopping center in um or a mall in Sydney where they had one water meter for an entire food court and they wanted to be able to split out the usage for each of the the, the restaurants in that food court to be able to go, you know, um, instead of everyone paying the exact same amount, um, the the fishery should be paying more because they're constantly using water, whereas this other restaurant barely uses any water, right? And what the other benefit you get of that is, okay, now that fishery is spending more money on water, so they will use less water, so they're spending less money on water. Um, so you get that inherent benefit of people don't like spending money companies especially don't like spending money so if you can give them insight into how they're spending their money they will try and spend less even if that means you know um changing how they do things
0: interesting okay super interesting topic um yeah that was actually the the last thing that I expected you to say as far as um, I, I knew that you worked in development but I just didn't know to like to what degree
1: yeah I, I don't really talk about it just because it doesn't really come up um, but even though I'm not like super into water meters I think the the things people are doing in those areas and this is the case for any industry right? A lot of this stuff doesn't get talked about or does get talked about, but in small circles in specific forums, for example, um, or certain circles on Twitter or certain, you know, hashtags on TikTok. Right. But everything people do to kind of make things more efficient um, or safer is fascinating.
0: I agree. I agree. One of the, uh, one of the last questions that I have for you, and this is something that I'd super intrigued to ask If there has been something that you've worked on within OBS that just ended up not being possible, is there something that you had a hand in or a bug that you were trying to troubleshoot that for whatever reason you just had to abandon because it it just wasn't going to happen?
1: I have about 20 different feature branches for OBS that currently I have not been able to get to work for various reasons. Okay. Um, there is always something that I'd like to like to do or like to try or an issue I'd like to solve, but either I don't know certain areas well enough or I can't come up with the right solution that doesn't introduce other issues to potentially make that something that would be worth merging. Because one of the big things for something like OBS... Um, is jim's the main guy right he is the one who okays basically everything right everything has to go through him and there's a level of i don't want to give him unnecessary work because he's already you know focused on so much but also i can see because any extra feature we add to obs is something that will have to be maintained and tested and verified every single update and the more you add, the more complicated the thing you're adding is, the more the, the longer that process of testing and verifying will be each time there's an update. So you have to have this balance of okay, we want this to be super feature rich, but also we don't want it feature rich in such a way where people can't find the feature or the feature becomes useless because no one knows how to find it or it breaks every update and Jim has to spend a couple of days every few months just on this thing to make sure it Works properly when it uh, did before, and now doesn't. Interesting.
0: Is that? Are there any features or or add-ons that have made it in, but have then gotten removed just because they've been problematic?
1: Um, Jim has been very careful about that. Um, there have been features. the The most recent one was we were making. Uh, so, Palakis, who makes the OBS NDI plugin and the OBS WebSocket plugin, um. He made a branch for um, uh, trackmat Stinger Transitions, which would allow you to have two videos side by side, one that's black and white, one that's your actual thing, and it can use those colours to determine which parts to show the original scene on and the next scene on, so that you don't have to have any part of the video transparent, which means hardware-accelerated uh, stingers, but also gives you a lot more variety in how those uh, transitions look, and a lot more creative uh, control. Um, after that, um, uh, one of the other guys who contributes like little UI improvements all the time, um, he submitted a thing that would allow you to add filters to um, transitions. And oh. initially that seemed super neat and we were like, this is awesome. And then that got merged. And then a couple of days later, we were like, hang on, the filters that we apply to transitions affect the scene before and after for the duration of the transition. And because of the way um, the layering works and the scene composition works, there is no good way with the current internal design to add filters onto just the thing that's overlaid on everything without affecting the things behind it in that particular... um, just because the way filters are structured internally. So we were like, oh, that's super... uh, You know, that's a bummer, but... At least we have track mat stingers that would allow you to still do things that would be just as cool. Um, but you know the the filters on on transitions didn't end up working. Um, there there do tend to be a couple features like that where it's like it gets merged in, and after being in the nightly for a couple days, someone comes up with an issue that we go, oh, that's an easy fix, and someone else submits another fix for it, or someone else you know goes, you know what? Thinking about how this is implemented now and how much effort it would take to try and fix fix this particular issue, we're going to have to revert this. Um, and that usually happens um, between the code being committed to the repository and beta. Like it, it almost never happens once we're in beta because once we're in beta, we're pretty happy. We, we tested ourselves before actually, um, you know, letting it out into the world. Um, so you have that kind of buffer of us. Now, in in that vein, most of us don't use OBS as heavily as a lot of big streamers do or big productions do. Sure. We just have a few test scenes and we flip between them and go. Everything looks okay, and we close it. Right. Um. We had one build where, um, the the thirty two bit uh, OBS would crash on startup, but the sixty four bit was fine, and we all tested sixty four bit. So we released it and. People started coming in and being like, I can't launch OBS anymore. And we're like, oh, whoops. So we had to release a, a fix for that, right? But it's it can be a bit of a bummer of being like, hey, this feature would be really, really cool. But because of, while the initial uh, implementation and the idea itself is relatively simple, once you run into a bug that you didn't foresee, it could be a huge bug that just isn't worth the effort
0: for that feature. Got it. Got it. Does... um. Does OBS run natively on the M1 Max?
1: Not yet. Okay. Um, we do have a couple people um, trying to um, get that to work. Um, the virtual camera on macOS is a universal package that is um, that does run on Rosetta two and natively, um, purely because depending on which app you launch, in the same way where on Windows, if you have a 32-bit app, it can only use the 32-bit camera even if the 64-bit OBS is generating that camera feed. Um, oh, so OBS interesting. has, for, for both game capture, it has two DLLs, one for 32-bit, one for 64-bit. And for the virtual camera, it has a 32-bit camera and a uh, 64-bit camera. So that each of those programs who can only interact with um, the architecture that they're designed for um, you can essentially have a translation layer that goes from 64-bit to 32-bit for that program. Um, on macOS, we OBS itself runs on Rosetta 2, which is their you know um, 64-bit to to arm um, translation layer. But the the the, the DAL plugin itself, which is loaded by those programs, is a universal package that contains both the arm M1 architecture and the 64-bit architecture, so that the program can then request the camera. RBS sends it
0: onwards. Interesting. I'm I'm very excited to see the future of ARM um, with consumer-based computing. Um, I'm yeah. I'm an Apple fanboy who doesn't have any Macs. I only have yeah. the other peripherals like my phone, my iPad, my AirPods, and stuff. Um, I used a MacBook Air at my last job, but I had to leave it when I left, and I just I apps I love mac os as a productivity machine um for the graphic design the photography the videography um and then just general operating system i I love i love the ecosystem um of ios and mac os and how they all work together but um but, but just seeing the future of arm and seeing what obs might how it might perform you know like obs on a on an eight or excuse me, a six hundred dollar Mac Mini or a, a nine hundred dollar MacBook Air, what is that gonna look like for the future? Can somebody take yeah. a MacBook Air to a D session, hook up three cameras, and just have an absolute powerhouse because of that? Um and seeing the emulation with Rosetta was even somebody who loves Apple stuff, when they first were talking about the M1s and Rosetta, I'm like, oh, this is going to be live tr- translation and this is this is going to be our future. And it ended up actually working okay. So the future of that is super bright. I'm pumped. Um, and I actually – I hadn't even looked to see if OBS was running natively or not. So thanks for uh, cl- clearing that up.
1: It's, it's fascinating the direction that Apple has chosen to take. I think a lot of people, myself included, were like, okay, so – what you know them switching to arm initially i was like how is that going to work um and then you see some of the performance benchmarks with rosetta 2 and you're like wow this would actually work and then you go okay but microsoft has been trying to do arm stuff for like eight years why why the immediate jump on apple that it works first time for a lot of apps not every app but most apps whereas for windows it just They initially had, what, the Surface RT that was (gasps) ARM, and you you couldn't run 32-bit or 64-bit apps on it, and, you know, that's such a limiting experience to Apple, out of the blue, goes, hey, here's our new lineup, here's M1, here's existing software just working, Um, voila. And it's like, what? Yeah, what the hell? Microsoft Microsoft must have been like... How do we do that yeah <laughs> like there's i think every every company in that aspect has their own challenges they're trying to solve and for someone like apple to bring in arm and be able to just make a lightweight machine that doesn't have any fans that runs quietly that doesn't get too hot but still is you know performs very well that is a breakthrough on its own and then if apple doing this pushes Microsoft to do the same thing because originally um they scrapped um Windows 8 RT um and then for Windows 10 they've started doing something called Windows on ARM which provides um 32-bit emulation um and it performs very poorly. Um after Apple announced 64-bit, you know, emulation on their ARM chips, Microsoft like a couple weeks later were like, "Hey, by the way, we're working on it too." Um and they have released um, Insider builds that have 64-bit emulation. I haven't seen any performance, uh, performance benchmarks for it, but clearly they've been working on it. They just haven't been able to get it to a point where they're comfortable sharing it, mm-hmm. whereas Apple just out of the blue, and this is something Apple does all the time, right? They're completely silent on what they're working on, and then they release something, and you're like, that's neat. Yeah. I would like that. Um, and pushing computing in that direction, I think, is fascinating, because I think there's a... Challenge at the moment, a lot of people have is, what does computing look like for me as a consumer? Right. There are people who have iPads that they barely use or use exclusively. There are laptops. There are you know uh, convertible laptops. There are desktops. There are all in ones. And you have all of these potential avenues of using, you know, software and the web to to do whatever you want to achieve. But being able to go, hey, uh, when, when I was working at my first company, everyone was on a MacBook um, because it was most of the people in, um, in the Melbourne office was um, not the, on the development side. They were more consumer facing, right? They would have meetings with clients to go, hey, what are the requirements of what you want to do? Um, and they were all on MacBooks. No one really had a desk that they always sat on. Um, they could literally grab a laptop, go into a meeting room and then come back out, and someone's at their desk, so they sit somewhere else and continue doing their work. Um, And the more you can kind of give people that freedom of um, doing the work they want to do wherever they want while still being as productive as they would be sitting in front of a powerful computer with three monitors, that is awesome. Yes. So it'll be interesting to see where Apple takes this next and how the competition handles... um, a p- possible transition to ARM, whether we all, you know, in 10 years end up being on ARM in the same way that 32-bit isn't common anymore. Every machine up until this point has been 64-bit almost exclusively. There have been edge cases, but for the most part, 64-bit. Will we be at a point where 64-bit apps are the legacy apps and it's all ARM because everything is much more interconnected in terms of CPU and GPU, and it all just performs well without the the downsides of having a hot laptop sitting on your lap, right?
0: I wonder, I, I'm trying to been, I've been thinking lately, what route is Apple going to go? Are they going to take, cause I, I have an iPad pro for my laptop. I don't have a laptop at all. I have a work laptop strictly for work. Um, I really don't have a need for a laptop because I'm always sitting in this chair in front of my, my battle station. Um, but I love the iPad for what it is. I wonder if they will have iPad OS, but if you were to go dock it and plug it into two two monitors, would it flip into macOS on ARM and you could use it like a regular computer, use a keyboard, use a mouse? And because the apps are trans, can be translated back and forth, would they go that route or are they gonna go, we're just taking macOS and it's now just Apple OS, whether you have an iPad uh, an iPhone, I don't think, I think iPhone will still always be separate. They'll always have iOS, but maybe the the iPads take on Mac OS. And then again, like you said, whether you're at a desktop, whether you're at, at home, you're going to have this single machine that is able to easily adapt to its different environments. I am very, um, very excited for that time because I'm somebody who, I need to work at a desk. I also need to work portably. And that is still not, the greatest experience with teams and OneDrive, And I'll give windows 10 credit bouncing between a laptop and a desktop as a tech on the go is quite a good experience, but it's, it's a very, very high barrier to entry. So for like for an everyday person, if you try to tell them about OneDrive and sync and, and teams, it's like, it's way, way too much. Um, but I would love to see um, that sort of, Ecosystem baked into the Mac operating system as well, because I think that there is um, there's huge market share for that.
1: We've we've definitely seen attempts at that. We've seen um, even my Huawei phone does have. If I plug it into a monitor or a TV, it does have a separate desktop-like environment that allows me to have multiple windows open and do stuff. And that was something that um, Windows Phone did originally try to do with uh, Continuum, where you plug in your phone to a little dock. I think I've got one somewhere here. And you literally um, connect a keyboard and mouse to that dock and you do everything from your phone. You get your phone notifications and everything. But because it's a Windows phone, you have Word, you have PowerPoint, you have all of these programs that are almost as feature-rich as their desktop counterparts, but enough for you to do something on the go. I think it'll be fascinating to see what those physical form factors look like as well on top of how we adapt the software. Um, purely because everyone has a phone in their pocket. Um, and making that more usable, I think this is where the foldable phones are fascinating, because you get that extra bit of screen real estate while still not compromising on it needs to fit in my pocket. Um, so there are so many directions we could go. I think the the issue we have at the moment is that everyone has a glass slab in their pocket that is very... They all look the same. and. I personally have always been against everything being a touchscreen.
0: I yes. I
1: think there is a huge benefit to being able to click on something without looking at it and knowing you clicked on the right thing. Um I I have woken up countless times in bed, grabbed my phone half asleep and just tapped on things with my eyes closed because I'm, you know, still not awake yet and then opened my eyes and gone, "Oh, I don't know how I got there. That was not my intention." Um and having some physical way of being able to interact with things like that. And, and that's also a, a challenge for accessibility, right? Yep. Or people who might be who might have limited sight or you know, not full motor control in their hands, are limited to this glass lab where they can't feel what they're doing and um, can't interact with it to the same extent that you or I might be able to, with a phone in front of us and both hands doing whatever we need to do right so there are so many ways we could go it'll be interesting to see where um i I think a lot of companies struggle with the motivations of trying something new because there is the downside of it will fail and um they will have spent a lot of money on something that's potentially not the way to go but i think experimenting is where we should be doing more
0: really i love my phone i hate typing on my phone i utilize dictation and voice messages like mad and i'm sure there's probably plenty of people that get really fucking annoyed that i send them voice messages because they're like why don't you just fucking call me but seriously like i don't know what it is about the ios keyboard but i have gotten worse and worse and worse at typing on it constantly making mistakes their auto correction is garbage and it's way too aggressive. And I just get to the point where I'm so fucking frustrated that like I'll be like, I'll go to send a tweet and then I'll just hit dictation and I'll talk to my phone and let it type because I just despise. <laughs> I despise typing on my phone so much. And um, my iPad has a full keyboard. And sometimes with I'm going to text somebody. If it's iMessage, I'll just grab my iPad, open it up, and I'll just type my text message because fuck using my thumbs.
1: Yep, Android has messages.android.com, I think, and um, there's a Windows app called Your Phone that can also interact with um, Android phones, and I don't know how feature-rich it is on iOS, but you get that same capability of you can just respond to messages on your computer using a keyboard. Um, the, the beauty of something like Dictation is that benefits you as a side thing of I don't like to type on a touchscreen, but it also benefits the people who can't, type on a touch screen for whatever reason right so you get that feature that is designed for one audience but is useful to anyone who chooses to use it who knows it exists sure um i the only i hate writing on my uh phone as well um i know what i want to write but it never comes out the way i want it written when i use my phone um so, like, I've I've been using shape writing on on the the phone for ages, which is much better than typing individual letters. Um, shape writing. Yes. So basically,
0: <laughs> I don't know if I can
1: show this as well. Let me quickly pull up, say Twitter. I've I don't m- know how well this will look. Um. So, uh, what's it doing? Um. That's not what I clicked. That's what I clicked on. If I. Um, oh, I...
0: it's like uh, swipe swipe texting. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, I gotcha. I'm like, what is this fucking this shape texting? I've never heard of this before. <laughs> yeah, Dif-
1: different uh, different companies call it different things. It um it had a different name on Windows Phone. Um, Swift Key calls it something different. Um,
0: yep. Yeah, yep.
1: But it it is much better than typing individual keys, but it still gets things wrong so often that I have to correct it. To the point where it pulls up words that I would never, ever, 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 ever used that I've never used before, even though I've chosen three key uh, you know, I've specifically drawn on three keys that I need for the word the, and it's like, it's picked up some other word that's like five letters long, and I'm like, yeah. I don't know what this word is, I've never used it before, why do you think this is the one I care about more than the word the, which I use 500 times a day, right? Yeah. Um. And, and that's the case for like any machine learning thing where it's like, it tries to guess what your intention is without using the knowledge it has about what you've written in the past. And this was something that was fascinating on Windows Phone. Initially, when they introduced, um, I don't think the initial version of Windows Phone had any kind of, um, autocomplete or any, you know, autocorrect for your writing. It came in pretty soon after, but the initial version didn't support it. And then once it did, that initial implementation was fantastic. And then over the years, it got worse. There were specific updates, like um, going from Windows Phone 7 to Windows Phone 10, where it just was complete trash. And now using SwiftKey, which is owned by Microsoft, on an Android phone, it just doesn't work as well as I remember, you know, any kind of prediction working on Windows Phone back in the day. So I reached the point where I'm like, yeah, maybe I'd be better off using dictation. But at the moment, I just pull up, you know, messages.android.com and just type on there because I can type so much faster. I'm already at my desk, Mm -hmm. so I might as well send it that way.
0: I, um, I just learned actually like this past week. So I do a lol like i'll do lol like over and over and over again when something's like really funny and i've recently found out that i can swipe in between l and o like five <laughs> times no matter how long i want my lull to be it will type it out and i'm like this is the fucking best because usually it's like l o l o l, lol now i'm just like super flicking back and forth in between the two um so i've realized that i've kind of done a little bit of both. I'll type out certain messages and I'll I'll do a swipe. And then other times I'll like, okay, I gotta I gotta two thumb this bitch and and I'll just type out the sends. Um so yeah, that has always been um uh, a uh thing that i've had to leap over like it's always been an obstacle for me to go to the all touch screen um you always see like if you pick up a like a sky mall magazine out of an airplane and you look and they're like oh a projector keyboard that projects a keyboard on your desk i'm like this is the stupidest fucking thing i don't want that i need the tactile feel and again, like um, people are like, oh yeah, I use an iPad, but I don't use a keyboard. I just I just tap on the screen. I just lay it down. I'm like, so you put a tablet flat down on your desk, and you have your your fucking chin all the way down, and you just type. That's it. Sounds like a terrible experience. That's the <laughs> worst
1: experience ever. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, uh, I
1: I have wanted the kind of technology for like ten years where a screen could potentially, you know, have some sort of physical interface that kind of pops out very slightly so that you've just got some sort of feedback on where buttons are but i don't a i don't think anyone's looking into it and b i don't think it's easy enough to potentially squeeze into a small phone that fits in your pocket
0: sure sure i ever i wonder if there will ever be like i think of like an iron man phone so it's like a phone that is regular but when you press a button The back of the phone expands into, like, a a keyboard that uh, those people in courthouses use, where it's not, like, a full keyboard. I I, I can't remember what they're called. And you would just use, like, all of your fingers to, like, type on the back of the phone. So your thumbs are just holding it, and you're just like, and then whenever you're done, you press a button, and then all the keys fold back into the phone. That's probably, like, 50 years out. Um but yeah, there's there's definitely by then it'll
1: just read our minds. Who cares? Yeah, right? right.
0: At this point, this coronavirus chip that we're all getting implanted. <laughs> um, all right, that is um, all I've got as far as like our core content. We do have a couple questions. Have you got time for a quick Q and A? Yeah, of course. I say that like you don't have like eight more hours of daylight. <laughs> I keep yep. forgetting. Um,
1: i right. only just hit 2 p.m. I'm here all night. Fucking awesome.
0: Uh, first question comes from Jellybean Joey. Let me do a quick refresh. Wizard, what are you running your mic DB-wise at in the Windows recording level? Are you using, uh, I'm sorry, are you running voice meter or virtual audio cable into Audition? And finally, do you run VSD filters in OBS? So if you need me to rehash any of those questions, let me know.
1: Uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, so I, I actually was the one who showed you a little tutorial on, um, how to check the, um, volume in a mic, um, in Windows. And I have that set to 100%, sorry, 0.0 dB internally, um, which let me quickly pull up my mic. Oh my God, that's right.
0: That was you.
1: 52%. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, that was because um, I remember when I first had that question of is 100 percent recording level in OBS or I'm sorry in Windows the same as on a fader on a mixer which would actually be like 110 115 um, percent. So that that's uh, that's super interesting. And then um, so go ahead with the other questions.
1: Yep. So so I have it set to 52 percent in in Windows. And then that goes into a virtual audio cable, um, which is the virtual cable internally is set to, I think hundred percent because that is 0.0 DB for the virtual cable. Um, And then all the filters I use are purely within Adobe audition Um, in terms of filters in OBS itself. The only filter I really do is a color correction on my camera Um, outside of that The feed that I send out in my streams and in calls like this are completely unfiltered from that aspect.
0: And that's how I like to do my audio is getting it tuned before it even hits OBS so that if it needs to go anywhere else, it can without issue. Um, I am. So I have actually been toying around this for a while from like 2019 to 20, like late 2020 I had my recording levels on both my gaming and my streaming PC at 55. Anything higher than that, I would get artifacting, I would get peaking, and it was all digital. None of it was analog. Everything in my signal up to that point was fine. Um, What I realized was even though I had my aux send knobs on my mixer at 12 o'clock, I was overloading the... I guess would you call them preamps? Would you call the the mic in or on a USB device? Because it's like it kind of is a preamp, but it's like a, it's a digital preamp.
1: Yeah, technically.
0: Um. So yeah. I I was I was maxing those out. So what I had to do on my mixer side was drop my output level by forty percent, and then I was able to up my um I was able to up my recording audio device up to I think right now I'm at ninety, but still no matter what I do. If it's in between 85 and 100, I get weird peaking, weird artifacting. So if if anybody ever has issues with mics, the first thing I tell them is lower your recording device level in Windows to 85 or 90 and then try to tune in your gain on whatever mic that you're using.
1: There is one benefit of uh, USB mics most commonly is they don't have a volume knob, or at least my one doesn't. Which means I have one less thing to potentially accidentally bump, you know, while moving my mic around uh, that would throw all my volumes out of whack. I did have one issue on um, Audition where I had a um, hard limiter as the last thing in the chain that I would always have on. And there was one point where I wanted to boost my mic a bit more um, and it would artifact. And I didn't realize that the hard limiter, for some reason, at certain volumes, not all volumes, would essentially add some digital artifacting noise in its attempt to limit the volume. So, in the end, I, I turned off that hard limiter and also didn't add the final boost. So I'm kind of a bit below the volumes where I should be. If I look at OBS, I'm currently just touching the red, um, when I should be somewhere in the middle of the red, but that's close enough. Um, so, it can. there are so many little things when it comes to audio that you kind of have to keep an eye on. Um. Virtual cables, especially when you update Windows, all get reset internally because essentially that the those virtual drivers have to be reinstalled. Um, whereas with physical hardware, that hardware is still plugged in, so it still has a, a recognizable identifier that Windows can sort of kind of guess with. Um, so every every little thing can break. It's it's kind of nuts. I have the virtual. I don't know if it's the virtual cable I have or if it's Audition, but if I leave Audition running for most of the day, then Audition will either crash or um, or my mic will start to crackle, and just restarting Audition fixes it. I have a button on my Stream Deck specifically for reopening Audition with the specific project file um, so that if it does um, disappear on me mid-conversation, which has happened as recently as two days ago, um, I can just click that button and be talking again. It's one of the reasons why I have Audition visibly on my left monitor at all times, because there's nice like big green bar it shows me, hey, the mic is being picked up. And if it's, the, I had one issue at work where we do our weekly, like Friday meetings on Zoom, but our daily stand ups are done on Teams. And my mic was working fine in Teams and then would be horrific to listen to on uh, Zoom. And eventually, what I ended up doing was I started using the web version of Zoom because the audio in Chrome was behaving correctly. It was just the Zoom desktop software that was struggling with the audio and i tried everything even restarting audition directly before talking and people will be like we don't know what you're saying the audio is that bad so interesting the it's everything can can affect it and it's frustrating because audio all you're trying to do is get your voice cleanly out to the person you're talking to and really i shouldn't have to have a virtual cable and five filters enabled just to be able to talk to you but here we are
0: And that, the exact situation that you just described is why... The Go XLR is successful and why I don't think it's overpriced because you, as somebody with all of that technical knowledge, you know exactly what you need to do when that shit breaks. But having virtual audio cable audition and then having to try and split that digital audio to different places if you want to, that's also that's a major fucking headache for a lot of people. Um, and that's why I always stand by certain things, The certain when people say that, oh, the Go XLR is overpriced, and I'm like, I don't think you understand what the alternative is, if you yeah, have the, anything the benefits
1: more. The benefits outweigh the cost for certain users. Mm-hmm. For someone like you or I, there are downsides to having a device like that. Um, personally, I would love to have a fit. I, I use the volume knob on my um, keyboard all the time for changing volumes for when I'm watching YouTube or playing games. I touch that knob almost constantly. Because I don't know if it's me or the way I watch content, but everything is a different volume all the time, and especially for movies, speech is always just that little bit quieter than everything else. So I am constantly changing up the volume when someone's talking and turning it down during all the loud, shooty parts. Right. Yep. Um, and I had the speaking of you know something like a Go XLR. I had a friend um, a few weeks ago buy a new uh, gaming headset, and that gaming headset supported having two audio devices in windows one for speech and one for game
0: right y- yeah
1: and while that headset is neat and there is definitely a use case for it for someone who has never touched audio in windows that thing is a nightmare because you have no idea how to set um your you know discord to go to one device and everything else to go to the other and she's had a number of situations where the way the volume slider works is that you turn it one way and it is um, the mic or, or the, the the voice, and the other is the game. And she has, by accident, turned that knob all the way to voice, so she can't hear anything, um, and been confused why. Because volume in general is completely separate from switching between those two. Um, and while I I understand the use case, I personally um, I have set my incoming audio to come in through a virtual cable that I then just enable monitoring in Windows. Right. And I use Windows Game Bar to be able to control individual volumes for different apps, including that um, uh, uh, cable. And what I now do is, for example, especially in Overwatch, where the volume, I prefer to play that, you know, in a volume where I can hear what's going on around me, um, because 5.1 speakers. Um, But when I'm talking to someone, I need to lower that game to about 50%. And going into the game settings every time is a pain in the butt. If I just have to hit Windows key G and just slide that there, so much easier but no one else is going to put in the effort to do that because why would they
0: i i actually never um thought about doing it that way cuz the game bar is actually fantastic like in its current it state is awesome. it is really really good i was impressed when we first downloaded the um the halo uh collection and we had to have that on and then i remember accidentally launching it i'm like Holy shit! This thing is like NGXT Cam on fucking steroids. I absolutely love this. Um, and I have actually- it's got built
1: in voice chat. It's got built in messaging. It's got built in achievements for your Xbox games. It's got volume for all of your apps. It's got um, CPU, GPU, RAM, VRAM monitoring, so you can be like, hey, why is my game lagging? Oh, my CPU usage is high without even alt tabbing out of the game. Like, that's awesome.
0: Imagine now Discord being baked into that if the Microsoft acquisition was to happen. Damn it. Yeah. Could
1: be interesting.
0: Very, very interesting. Um, yeah. I, I see you have some thoughts on that, but maybe that's a conversation for another day.
1: I, I have so many thoughts. I I kind of. Microsoft has a habit of. Doing their own built-in things and then just not putting in enough effort to make it really good. Mm -hmm. Um, This was the case for um, uh, the Xbox stuff in general. Skype, when they killed off MSN or Windows Live Messenger and migrating people to Skype, there were just so many things that they didn't bother re-implementing that kind of made that entire ecosystem just fall by the wayside for other companies to just swoop in and go hey check out our software um windows phone was less so that um in in their case i don't think there is enough um of a market for mobile phones for there to be three platforms because especially for developers that is a nightmare to have to have three different apps that you know uh, just to reach your audience yep um But Microsoft has a habit of making cool things and then just not improving on them until everyone starts using something else, and then they'll kill it off because no one's using it, rather than um, improving it so that people use it. Whereas Google will just kill off anything and everything (laughs) and have 10 chat apps to boot, right? So, different mentalities, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah uh second question as uh comes from master Sly, as someone who is a noob when it comes to obs and is looking into learning it what noob friendly content would be best to learn from step by step enough to get the basics under one's belt
1: uh i think the best place to start is epos fox's master um it's like four hours of content and it covers from the basics to the advanced stuff um, we do have a like four step quick start guide for OBS that is literally, you know, add a video source, make sure your mic is working, you know, hit start record and make sh- and test, test, test. Um, but in terms of the more advanced stuff, there are so many good video tutorials out there. I think Nerd or Die had a video series at one stage that, you know, covers the basics really well. There are a number of really good creators on YouTube, especially, but on TikTok as well, that are just trying to get the word out either for specific interesting features or just the basics that no one even knows about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so start with start with that uh, masterclass on YouTube, and then you can always go into the OBS Discord and be like, hey, I want to learn this particular thing, or I want more information about this aspect. We do have a couple wiki guides. Um, the most recent one that someone was really nice to, to write up is scripting when we released the ability to write Lua and Python scripts for OBS, we were super excited to see what people would do with them. But because no one has any where to start, um, you just end up with not a lot of cool scripts done. But once you kind of open up that gateway of going, hey, here's a guide to start with, and then from there you can follow other tutorials or ask other people who might know more, then you kind of have the opportunity to build up that knowledge and make cool things.
0: Yeah, there is... um. In regards to the holy shit, I just lost my train of thought. What were you talking about before the the scripting uh, guides? Oh yeah, guides. Um, I I think that Epos's masterclass is absolutely amazing. My only fear with recommending that now is I think that guide came out in twenty eighteen, where there has been so many changes to obs um and just just visually where things have been moved to um i know that both nerd or die yeah and i i know that epos i think he's been having little clues here and there about updating that and redoing some things um i know gaming yeah. careers another youtube channel i think they mm-hmm. just released like a a a course where it's like just getting started with streaming like how to get your first thing set up i would definitely check out um gaming careers there's a there's a channel that is slipping my mind i i want to say it's like gathalian gaming or it's i think it starts with a g i don't know
1: uh, i think i know what you're talking about um yeah uh
0: i can see the logo i can Goliath, see it in- i think I don't know. It's gone. I don't know. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, Nutty. Nutty is another fantastic resource. He's he's mm-hmm. very targeted regarding like if you want to do this one super cool thing, I, I, I'll do a tutorial for it. And as as far as like getting third party utilities and tools to work with OBS, Nutty's fantastic for that too. Um, but yeah, I would say Masterclass, good place to start. Search for gaming careers, most recent videos, and see what kind of OBS guides they have uh, they put out recently.
1: I, I need to put together like a list of good YouTubers that just release good videos. Yeah. Gail is, is a very good, uh, um, a channel I, as well. I actually um, have a list,
0: um, on stream Wiki, There is a, I can't remember the exact page. I think it is. Yeah, YouTube channels for tips and tricks. I'll post that in chat right now. Um, yeah. I've got a, I've got a long list. Uh, there are going?
1: even like smaller channels that just do like if you, as a teacher, want to do more with your, um, you know, recordings for things, then you know there are channels for that as well that are more specialized and provide more um, detailed content specific to you rather than generic stuff. But yeah, there there are a lot of even generic things that are like, hey, you know, you want to do this thing with transitions here. You want to learn how to use this plugin? Go for it, right? There's just so much potential content to be made, plus you add on all the potential plugins that exist. Yes. And then you go, okay, well, there's probably about 10 different tutorials for each of them to give you different ways of using it or a different use case to use it for um, to, to better give you um, the knowledge you're specifically looking for.
0: Last question from Jellybean Joey. Is OBS on Android a possibility?
1: So mobile is so the the challenge there is the limited number of developers um because if if we're trying to focus on mobile as well as desktop then releases would be less frequent features that end up being in those releases would be you know smaller less less impactful um there are a couple okay streaming apps on mobile the big thing that we would see as the challenge if we were to make one on mobile is that on desktop we have the benefit of being able to encode on the cpu through x264 or through nvenc on the gpu and you have this beautiful isolated chip specific for encoding that means nothing else um, runs into issues right and the thing on mobile i think would be the big challenge there is heat because you have this tiny phone in your hand and if you're trying to encode high quality video for extended periods of time i don't think a phone is where you would want to um put that you know level of um of work um that being said um if we did do it on mobile it would probably not be a very similar experience to how it is on desktop there would be a lot of features that you wouldn't get purely because a lot of the stuff on desktop is either very advanced in the sense that it takes some time to set up and um it allows you to um do so much more whereas on mobile for most people they either want to show their screen or they want the camera and in that case you don't need a full um suite like obs to do that and if you do want to do that kind of thing you might even be better off using an online service where you stream to that online service it adds the overlays on top and then all of that hard work happens you know Away from your hand, where your phone is getting really hot because it's constantly on with the screen and everything.
0: I wonder how um, how common that is with mobile streamers right now. I know for the the majority, they're just getting LTE antennas from their mobile provider, but I wonder if there's anybody that is utilizing like AWS with an RTMP server and is just throwing the stream up there, managing maybe having OBS running on a dedicated server, like a VDS or something, um, I, I assume, again, for the, the average person, that's probably not as common. But I wonder if, what if down the road, um, you know, a, uh, Amazon actually sells a service where you literally go to your web server and you just see OBS, like an instance of OBS running, and you can just configure it like a remote web server and just go from there. And if that will be in the same way... Where Microsoft is moving to Azure and everything is becoming cloud, will instances of OBS even for a home streamer will that be something that is offloaded to a remote location? Will will we get to that point where that is like the norm? That that's super super interesting.
1: I I think right now there's a point where some people do that with laptops in their backpacks, um, and then other people that do there are there are at least a couple services I know of that essentially are a hosted. AWS instance with OBS running the challenge you run into there is OBS a lot of people when they think of OBS is they just want to add a couple sources and just go right um what they kind of and encode the video to send it out what people tend to forget is sure OBS needs something to encode with whether that be a CPU or a GPU but the actual rendering itself also has to happen somewhere and hmm. for a lot of servers themselves they don't come with a GPU right And that GPU is an extra cost. So wouldn't you be better off maybe streaming it from your phone to your home office, where you have your own powerful computer with a GPU already, and then forward that out? And there are people who have successfully set it up like that. I think there is a big concern in that aspect of um, usability, and how much setup is involved, and what happens when things break. Um, Having to think about all of these potential fixes for the entire pipeline, where mobile streaming is huge, um, but I also think it's a different use case to people on desktop trying to use OBS. And while there are benefits to, for example, certain apps that do add a chat overlay or whatever else, that's a very specific use case that might be better suited to be specific to that use case rather than OBS, which is more a generalized thing that anyone can use for any purpose um with as little as one webcam you know streaming out a virtual camera to zoom like i am now or you know someone who's streaming out from from their home office with multiple cameras and computers and capture cards and all this other stuff to to kind of build out a a proper
0: setup gotcha gotcha all right, my dude. Well, that's all the questions I got on the Q&A. And unfortunately, that is also the end of the podcast. So what I'd like for you to do, um, if you want to do a quick self shout out, if you want to sell out anything, announce anything uh, that you got going on, share any social media, the floor is temporarily yours.
1: Man, I wish I had more stuff to shout out. Um, <laughs> honestly, um, just Twitter um, at WizardCM. I I tend to follow a feed of people mentioning OBS in all sorts of uh, uh, avenues of you know looking for help Um, you can find me in the OBS Discord super active I do um, peruse the forums a bit um, to to see if there are any questions there that are worth answering Um, there is an OBS subreddit as well but honestly most of my time is spent either on Twitter or in the OBS Discord so that's those are the two best places to find me gotcha okay
0: well, my dude, it was awesome sitting down and having a conversation with you. I very much appreciate you taking time out of a Sunday to just sit here and talk nerd shit. So thank you very much for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, dude. All right, man. I'm going to I'm gonna let you go. I'm going to continue streaming here, probably playing some video games. Um, but we'd love to have you back sometime, and I uh, hope you have a great rest of your Sunday.
1: Absolutely. You too.
0: All right. Later, man.
1: See ya.